This episode is dedicated to Mike Marsh, Evelyn E. Kim, and Ivy for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Karian. This is Jeremiah. This is Sean. This is Alexander. This is Jimmy. This is New Guy. And this is Fight Study. Today is a very special fight study where we have members of Team Southpaw on for a panel discussion about UFC Fight Night 184, Overeem vs. Volkov. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Team Southpaw is the name of our Patreon Discord server, where basically we chat and hang out literally every day with other like-minded lefties. I think speaking for everyone, finding a combat sports group like this has been invaluable, especially for our mental health. So let me introduce our panel. We have Karian. Hello. Alexander. Hey, everybody. Jeremiah. Hello. Sean. Hello. Jimmy. Hello. And New Guy. Hello. They'll be discussing the fights with me while I do my best to moderate this conversation. Let's start with Ode Osborne versus Jerome Rivera, where Osborne won by knockout in 26 seconds of the first round. So... Uh, it's a very short fight. I don't know how much we have to discuss, but hopefully there's some stuff. So, Karian, let's start with you. What were your thoughts for this short fight? Um, fights this short, it's always hard to um, analyze and get much out of it sometimes. Um, but I just felt like, you know, going in there, both guys looked like they were setting up their strikes well, but then it really was just a case where O'Day hit like the perfect roll off of that head kick um, and managed to actually get the foot to kind of stick on the shoulder and just a perfect return with the left hand, like straight down the center. And one thing about this is like, it's a great example of seeing what happens if when you're told to do something like technically correct, just works the first time. You know, this is how like a coach that's kind of being a little bit hyperbolic might go about it in practice. Like, you know, that concept of like one touch and done. Um, it's not always going to go like that, but this time it did for Ode. And I mean, it looked beautiful. New guy. So initially coming to this fight, uh, the last time I'd seen Ode was in, I think it was the McGregor Cowboy card. He fought Brian Kelleher and he cut this hilarious promo about how one day, uh, Conor McGregor was going to be fighting on his undercard or something. <laughs> um, and he lost via first round submission. So it, it was it was nice to see him come back and just win decisively in the first round. Yeah, it's amazing. Somebody who looked that good in a very short fight had lost his previous fight. I think, like uh, Karian said, sometimes you just do it right and you look like a killer. One thing I noticed was both fighters were southpaws. So they were in parallel stances. But when Rivera threw the high kick and Osborne caught it, Rivera was now stuck in an orthodox stance, which opened him up for the left straight counter. So it was a beautiful use of opportunity. And I mean, you see this a lot. You see this, I've, I've seen this in a couple of fights where either off of a rolled kick or with like a checked low kick, um, they'll just come in straight with the, 
the straight rear hand. And I, I think we saw it in the um, Chaos Williams fight before he fought Behera. He fought Razak. And exactly the same. It wasn't a rolled kick, but he just kind of came in as his opponent had, you know, just one leg off the ground after the check or after the kick was checked and um and it worked. So kind of the only counter for it is what Joaquin Buckley did with the spin kick. When you when the guy catches your kick, you got a spin kick to defend yourself or else you're gonna get blasted in the face. <laughs> yeah, that's a very athletic way to do it for sure. Yeah, it's got caught and like the worst time to get caught. It was early. We'll be talking about some other weird situations fighters got caught in in this event later on. Next, we have Martin Day versus Timur Valiev, with Valiev defeating Day by a dominant decision, 30-25, 30-25, and 30-26. Let's start with Sean. Thoughts? All right. Um, the first thing I noticed was just uh, Valiev uh, with lots of leg kicks. And uh, he really uh, dominated against the cage. I thought, you know, he was uh, he was just smothering him the whole fight. I guess uh, the biggest note I kept writing was that Day was just surviving. I also wrote almost Habib like, not necessarily that he's as good as Habib, but once he like locked onto him, there, he wasn't getting off of him. You know, the other thing I found interesting was the announcers kept saying he was doing everything right. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know if that was accurate. I wasn't seeing that. Like, I just saw the guy just trying to, you know, squirm and just make it through the round. Yeah. If you're doing everything right, I don't know if that should be happening. Yeah. If you're doing everything right, something's going to work. I mean, you're going to improve your, at least improve your position. Right. And he was doing none of that. I mean, kind of building on what Sean said, um, they just felt smothered, but even in the exchanges on the feet, um, before, there was before uh, Valeev initiated any grappling. Um, you know his movement was just so. He had a lot of that like in and out darting movement. He had a lot of lateral movement, and even just in the striking exchanges, I felt like Day was being smothered. And then when it went to grappling, it was just like, well, Valeev's probably level or two above Day right now. He's also one of the first people I've seen be able to really combine like that taekwondo like stance and stuff into his wrestling really well was like um just bouncing in and out of his kicks throwing hard shots and then he would also just grab a snatch single really quick but i liked a lot when he did get on the ground um as i actually wrote down my notes for that are literally just head pressure hand control wrist rides he had such intense head pressure at one point in the first round when he got day down um day was trying to go for like a guillotine couldn't even get like his hand under Valiev's head at all. It was glued to his chest, and then Valiev was pushing the top of his head into the chin, digging underhooks, pulling you know shin over the wrist, controlling the wrist with his other hand, um, you know, passing to both sides. Um, what I like the most about this fight is you know Day was just surviving, but I also think that's an important thing to see um, from a prospect like him. Um, you know, when I see something like that and I see someone getting outclassed, but I see them not giving up immediately, that to me is someone that, you know, if I were a coach, I'd be like, okay, this sucks and this is a bad fight for us and we're losing, but like we can get better. And like we talked about, you know, if you were doing everything right, you would have had a better fight. 
can't do everything right and still get like smoked in a 10-8. That's not how <laughs> doing things right goes. Yeah, that's not what doing it right looks like. No, not at all. Um, you know, and that's not to say he looked really bad or anything. He just looked like, you know, he had one way to stand up. That wasn't working. When that didn't work, he was like, okay, I know I need to get to guard. And Valief would just pass again. And yeah, like new guy said on the feet, he seemed like he, you know, came into this fight thinking like, okay, I've got the striking edge. This guy's got the grappling edge. That's how this is going to go. Then when it was hard striking too, it was like, you know, what do I do? What's my answer? One thing I noticed is nowadays, if you try to limp leg out of a single, so a single leg takedown without fighting the hands by just turning away and trying to score them out. A lot of the high-level grapplers will run you to the fence while your back is turned, then take your back, uh, which is what happened in this fight. It didn't create a fight-ending sequence, but you're seeing that a lot now. Sometimes you're like, how did it go from a takedown attempt to the person taking the back? And that's often how that happens. You're not wearing wrestling shoes, so it's so easy to just squirm out in MMA that people got sloppy with their single leg defense. And now good grapplers are using that as an opportunity to take the back. Yeah. I think it's something you're seeing a lot more in general, like with the, the Ferguson Oliveira. Um, he basically moved into all of those body lock takedowns by just attempting sort of like a, uh, a single leg on Ferguson. And um, it, it's just interesting to see that, you know, what, we typically think of as a takedown is now just sort of being used as a positional thing to move the fight to the sort of geography where you prefer. And um, another thing with Day is like when he was just getting smothered on the ground, he wasn't ever really using the fence and his larger frame to try to get up. He was just really sticking to that kind of like BJJ guard game. And, um, when we were when we were watching, a couple people were mentioning just that at this point in the game, like people have just sort of learned how to neutralize that from the top, even from within the guard. And um, and yeah, if you're not using that fence to either get up or keep the guy down, you're just not using a huge part of the game. Yeah, um, unlike the takedown thing, I think like uh, like the takedown to get to the back body lock. I think that that is really something that we've seen coming up more. Um, that's like one of those influences of uh, Habib's style that, you know, you might not credit to Habib at first. Uh, I think a lot of people have watched Habib do, you know, his shoot onto a low single and build up from there because he's Habib and he can do that. And they might have realized, you know, I can't do that. I can't shoot a low single and then fight my way to the takedown from that. But what I can do is I can grab a single. And when they do try to limp leg out, I can keep on them and, you know, push them to the cage at least. And then I also wanted to say with Day off of his back, not using the cage, I think that's one of those weird examples too, where, you know, people have watched Habib wait for that wall walk, but then, you know, start pressing you into the cage just get the mat return, keep grinding you. And some people's coaches have, you know, taken the idea of like, well, when you're in that spot, just keep going back to your back. You know, these guys are wrestlers. They're not good at jujitsu. Like, you'll get something. And you have to be 
way, way, way better than them at jujitsu to actually get that to work. And abandoning something like a wall walk because you're worried about a mat return is just taking away options from yourself that like how they don't have to worry about you wall walking. Next, we have Sung Woo Choi versus Yusuf Zalal, with Choi defeating Zalal by unanimous decision. Jeremiah, what are your thoughts for this fight? It just looked like that it was Choi leading the dance all the time, and Zalal couldn't really get anything what he was wanting to do. New guy? Yeah, so I, I, I sort of predicted that Zalal would have an advantage in the in movement and evasiveness, and he did a good job evading um, playing the outside game, but it just sort of seemed that he was really tentative about the power of Choi, and Choi was really just swinging hard shots the whole fight, and he also seemed to have, a, at least to my mind, a very noticeable uh, advantage in size and power over Zalal. So even though Zalal, it seemed like he felt he was in the game all three rounds, um, he just couldn't really seem to get an offense off. And the only thing that seemed really successful for him was trying to wrestle against the cage. And Choi, in contrast to the last fight, just seemed to really be able to use his frame to defend against the fence, to reverse against the fence. Zalal had that one guillotine attempt, or I think maybe two guillotine attempts, um, that nothing really came out of, or that nothing really uh, happened from. To me, it seemed like um, Zalal was landing like one or two good punches, but then just Choi was throwing back in power, like powerful combinations, and that kind of scared him off of that tactic. And I definitely do think he seemed to have an advantage on the ground when they did get there. He had, you know, a really close guillotine attempt there in third round, like in the third round that looked tight. Then um, when Choi started to sit up and like thin the hands, it looked like he was going to go to a triangle. But there seemed to be a point where Zalal just couldn't quite decide whether he wanted to try to keep that guillotine or try to go to the triangle. And he loses both. And then Choi just kind of, you know, ground and pounds him out for the rest of the round. I did hear on commentary that Zalal, you know, came in on short notice and was telling them that, like, you know, I prefer this, actually. Um, you know, I don't want to have a full fight camp. I like coming in like this. It's less stress. I definitely could see this being a fight that kind of changes that mentality for him because there were a few times where he looked just like, you know, he wasn't really sure what to do. He looked like he wasn't prepared for this. Next, we have Meatball Molly McCann versus Laura Procopio with Procopio defeating Meatball by unanimous decision. After the fight, Meatball laid her gloves down in the middle of the octagon, not to retire, but to honor her dad. Alexander, let's start with you. Thoughts for this fight? Yeah, this was a really interesting fight to me. I, um, because I didn't know anything about Procopio, but I had seen McCann fight a few times, and I enjoyed her stand-up. Um, when I was watching... I noticed that like in the first round it starts off and she's doing a pretty good job of like sticking and moving and catching Procopio with like counter left hands. Um, a couple of times Procopio tried to throw right hooks <laughs> and McCann just ducked under him like it was nothing. Unfortunately, after that, it got to the cage and it got to the clinch. And then once it got to the clinch, it seemed like McCann's ability to disengage from grappling 
was somewhat limited. And so then it just became like a ticking time bomb of when she was going to get taken down. And then once she got taken down, she wasn't getting up. And so, yeah, it was, it was one of those very frustrating fights where, um, you know, for three rounds, someone basically just doesn't have an answer for anything until in the second round, uh, McCann threw up that arm bar attempt, which looked tight. But after that, it, it seemed to just tire her out to attempt it, if anything. Um, I remember seeing her legs kind of shake after she got up after that round. And then from then on, it was just more of the same. Karian? I feel like, like in my notes, I put down, you know, um, McCann really needs to work on her wrestling. But what I mean by that isn't um, what usually comes to mind when people say that people need to work on their wrestling. Um, what I mean by that more is I would like to see McCann work a lot on start from the clinch and then just work on getting your frame back, making space and disengaging. You know, I don't, I don't know that I want to see her work a ton on like offensive wrestling, but defending shots and then also defending yourself from the clinch, learning how to strike out of the clinch and create those breaks, I think would be invaluable for her. Um, Procopio seemed to really be able to just stick to her and she didn't really have an answer you know, was trying to like pummel through and stuff, but still just getting taken down. Not because the takedowns were really good, but because they were consistent and always there. Like, Procopio was just really good about being on her, always attempting a trip or a takedown, and then like eating her up a little bit. Um, that arm bar was very surprising. You know, um, I think it was like just a few minutes after the commentary booth had been like, both of Procopio's parents are BJJ instructors. She's so good at this. Like, you know, she definitely has an advantage. And then it was all of a sudden, oh, McCann might be getting this. Sean? First of all, Meatball might be my favorite fighter nickname of all time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, uh, I mean, I'm just going to be adding on to what other people have said here. But Procopio, like, w- once she got McCann to the cage, and she was able to really clinch up with her. Like the takedown was, it felt inevitable. Like we saw there, I was just trying to count how many fights kind of ran this same theme. And it was like four or five fights on this card where one person just got absolutely smothered on the ground. And uh, like people said, except for that one armbar and a little bit of success on the feet before she got pushed into a cage or just thrown on the ground. Uh, Procopio mostly just dominated. And, and, you know, you made that joke on the Discord about UFC 10. (laughs) And just like the style mismatches that were happening all through the beginning of this card. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a little stunning to watch. For people who complain they miss styles versus styles, just watch the prelims. That's their problem. (laughs) They're only watching the main card where people are much more well-rounded. You watch the prelims or you watch regional MMA and you'll still see style versus style yeah i also noticed in the beginning of the fight meatball really came out with just a fast pace out the gate just seemingly just trying to like take lars head off and um it seemed like in a lot of those situations rather than you know being patient and choosing her strikes she kind of put herself into a lot of those clinch scenarios which obviously led to her getting taken down and it just sort of seems like at this point, you know, you can acknowledge that your opponent might have better grappling than you. 
but there are ways to just keep it from getting there. And I just didn't feel that McCann was doing that. I think she was a little bit too eager to just go out there and try to just, you know, beat up Procopio. Next, we have Jocelyn Edwards versus Carol Rosa, with Rosa getting another dominant decision of the night over Edwards. New guy, your thoughts for this fight? At the beginning of the fight, I remember hearing that Jocelyn Edwards came from a boxing back background. And um, unfortunately, that boxing background really showed, but not in the way of success with her hands. <laughs> Mostly just that she wasn't really checking kicks. She didn't really have uh, a bottom game. She couldn't really cage walk or get up from the takedowns. Um, the only real kind of bottom game we saw while she was on the ground was she kind of did like a Boston Crab type escape, which was kind of <laughs> cool. And she put her uh, opponent into, into rubber guard for a little bit, but it was all very ineffective. Um, the fight got real bloody. Uh, I think Carol Rosa got cut, um, I think, into the second round. But yeah, it, it was more more or less of the same for this card of just one fighter kind of just getting smothered and not knowing what to do. This was like the most early UFC style versus style looking match where yeah, it reminded me of like Marco Huas versus Paul Varlins where Paul Varlins never had seen a leg kick before. I mean, we talk about how MMA fighters are bad at chicken kicks. Yeah, but they know what chicken kicks are, whereas this fighter looked like she had never seen it. So yeah. for people who miss that type of weird style clashes, like when you actually see it, it's not as cool as you think it's going to be. You just feel bad for the other person. Um, yeah. If you really enjoyed that last fight, you love this one too, because it was, <laughs> it was a lot more the same. Um, it had me wondering a couple of things though, just surrounding the fight. They said when Edwards was coming in that she supports her family off of the money that she makes. And so it has me wondering about her ability to hire coaches to cross-train, which is something you were talking about, Sam, is thinking about the ways in which fighters, like economic means, determines what kind of coaches they can hire. And people think all the time, why don't you just go hire a boxing coach? Mm -hmm. You know, And so it has me wondering about the same thing here in terms of, well, why don't you just go hire a Muay Thai coach? Or why don't you just go to Thailand? Or like, why don't you just fly down to AKA really quick? Um, the other thing about that that was kind of weird also was that they had this moment where they're like, you know, Jocelyn Edwards, she said yes to this fight. This is like right on the back of them talking about how she supports her family off the money she makes. They're like, she said yes to this fight before she even knew who her opponent was. That's motivation. Um, <laughs> which is just, is that motivation? Or is that I need money, so I will definitely take a fight and who matters? It, it doesn't matter as much who the fight is versus. Um, that being said, she didn't get finished, you know, for someone who didn't seem to know a lot on the ground. Yeah, her ability is limited by her economics more than anything else, not her will, that's for sure. Sean? Yeah, just a couple thoughts. Uh, the first is that the motivation thing, it's often hard to kind of pull that apart from desperation, mm. you know? And uh, the one thing that it really felt like Edwards on the ground was, you know, we talked about McCann and Day and how they just got kind of smothered and they lost badly on the ground. It really felt like Edwards was like a step behind even that like she just looked incredibly uncomfortable all the time to me even with like 
like a forearm under her chin. It just didn't seem like she had any idea how to even clear something like that. And then, uh, you know, other than that one escape, it was just another another fight where a fighter got smothered and lost badly. I got really excited when I saw that escape because, you know, that's like a, something I did a lot in the gym that uh, definitely unorthodox. And I've never been able to teach it to a lot of people because it requires a lot of flexibility and like weird core strength in a way that a lot of people don't have. But um, it looked like that was something that Edwards probably had never done that before. And she just threw it up and it worked. You know, when you're someone that's supporting your family and like you're desperate to take any fight you get, you don't really get to decide like what you work on as much. You know, you can have ideas and stuff. You can look stuff up on your own, but that's a lot harder than what these other you know people are going to be doing, working with professional coaches and stuff. Um, but that being said, like Rosa also like you know looked really good. Um, that cut in the mouth was very nasty to be able to put up with that and like she didn't you know have any issues after that was still grinding through everything landed hard shots of her own on the feet it wasn't like you know it was a grappler versus striker matchup it was a grappler that also has pretty decent striking against someone that really only has the boxing to rely on right now Next, we have Justin James versus Devontae Smith, with Smith defeating Justin James by TKO, Dr. Stoppage, at 3 minutes and 38 seconds of round number two. Karian, your thoughts for this fight? So immediately in the first round, like what stood out to me is that James was coming out and you know pumping out a good jab that was catching um, Devontae Smith pretty clean and hard and some good calf kicks as well. They were kind of feeling each other out for, you know, the beginning. Um, the things I loved seeing from Smith that I don't think I've seen, at least not in a long time, is um, when he got a kick caught instead of just freezing on the feet and letting, you know, James do whatever he wanted with that leg, he immediately just started attacking viciously with, like, hooks and hammer fists and, like, full force, um, you know, and then immediately got James to drop that leg exactly what you want to see um i think the last time i saw something like that was probably like benson henderson versus frankie edgar smith just looked really really good in this he looked like you know striking was working his grappling was working um when they went to the ground he was showing a really good ability to realize you know oh he got out of the sub i'm just gonna stand up like i'm not gonna mess around with this i'm not gonna stay in an area i don't have to and then just his power, you know, causing that like ridiculous bruising and swelling under James's eye. Um, it was really impressive. It was something that I definitely, you know, when there's a doctor stoppage, I feel like it's hard to count that as just a normal like TKO. People want to, you know, kind of be like, well, I want to see it go. I want to see, you know, like if they, if the other guy could have done something. Uh, it was such a like powerful shot that definitely the right time to cut, like stop that for sure. There's no way James could have seen out of that eye at all. And one more powerful strike, and it might have busted, which would have been absolutely terrifying. Alexander, yeah, I had seen because um, they had they did like a little fighters you should know on YouTube, you know, in the promo leading up to the fight or whatever, and they had Smith on there. 
And I noted that, yeah, he had a very, as Karyan had said, um, had a very damaging kind of defense to being grappled, where he just was raining down elbows on this dude from like, uh, like being up against the cage. And so, but besides that, what I had noticed is that he has good accuracy just in terms of where he lands his punches and stuff like that. And that definitely played out in this fight, I think. Um, James is a guy who, when I had first seen him kind of in the fight, like in the, in the stuff leading up right before the fight, I was a little bit worried because he moves his head to the side and he throws those big hooks. So against somebody who likes to throw the one-two, like I think Smith does, you know, it gives you a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of worries. Like, what if something comes over top? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that might be really that might be really troubling. And so, I think there were a couple of times where I got really worried about that, just because Smith seems to sometimes throw out his jab just to throw it out as like, a, "Here you go, here's when I'm going to throw it, here's my timing," you know. <laughs> um, and the same thing with like a stiff arm kind of, and like a Tommy Hearn style where he was like holding his and controlling his head, you know what I'm saying, and blocking off his vision but he would never throw anything behind it. And that's what I would like to see from him in the future, I think, is to throw something behind that and just to sometimes not just back all the way out and use it to escape, but sometimes stop short and try to do a little bit of damage on the end of that. But overall, very good fight. Yeah, I thought this was a really entertaining fight. Um, after a couple you know, one-sided matchups, it was just nice to see a competitive fight, a very dynamic fight. Devontae Smith came out. And I believe he opened with just a very fast kick. Throughout the fight, he was just constantly popping the jab, and it really seemed to work just in terms of measuring distance between him and his opponent. And like Alexander said, just that one-two, um, his 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 range and his distance just really worked for him. Um, not just that, but we kind of saw a lot of different facets to his game. Um, we saw his kicks. We saw his single leg defense, which was super entertaining, just wildly swinging. Um, and then even in round two, when James pressed him against the fence, he executed a really beautiful throw uh, against the cage from his, with his back to the cage, which was just really impressive. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to look out for Smith in the future just because this fight was really entertaining. Next, we have... Danilo Marquez versus Mike Rodriguez, with Rodriguez losing for the second straight time by submission. Alexander, your thoughts for this fight? Marquez dominated this fight um, once it got to the ground. Um, and it seemed like Rodriguez was in a spot where he didn't really know what to do. And what kind of really tips me off to that is that his coach, Joe Lozon, was giving him step-by-step instructions <laughs> through everything. He was like, okay. Move your hand to the side of his hip. Okay, no, his hip. And he's like trying to find his hip. You know what I'm saying? With his hand. I'm like, hey, some of this, we might, we should have worked some of this out in the gym. <laughs> we should have worked some of this out in the gym. Um, and it just has me thinking again about whether or not fighters make good coaches or good training partners or whatever it may be. Because you compare that to um, Marquez, who gave a lot of credit to Damian Maya and his training with Damian Maya in his post. Uh, fight speech sean yeah i was actually uh excited about another smothering this <laughs> fight but um yeah i mean i was just gonna note what alexander was talking about where he was getting you know step-by-step directions and still looked lost on the ground and then once once he got the uh, body triangle on him once marquez put rodriguez in the body triangle it was it was basically a 
just waiting, just waiting for the rear naked choke. Yeah, that's uh, obviously a glaring uh, weakness for Rodriguez there. Next, we have Benil Dariush versus Diego Carlos Ferreira, with Dariush winning by split decision. Jimmy, what were your thoughts for this fight? So Dariush showed great striking IQ in round one. Um, like he was really crisp up until the the uh, when they first scrambled on the ground, um, which is kind of natural. I could tell because kind of the energy was drained, but like that crispiness was you know really impressive. Um, and you know knowing that they both have a a grappling background, um, that was really good to see them like like be thinking, um, thinking through, and they were trying to both adjust to each other's striking. Um, so it wasn't like a brawl. So that was really cool to kind of see like this IQ being used. I thought that yeah, Ferrer was able to like really get a read on it, but he came back with the good use of teeps. Um, and once he was using it, I could tell in his head he was like, okay, this is working. Let me try it again. So there was this yeah, this this cool process of seeing um, these guys kind of think it through. And taking their time and measuring it and you're kind of trying to you repeat what's working. So it's kind of like a methodology to that that I was seeing. And it was really cool and familiar as a striker. But overall, what I noticed is that Jerry Ush is like very confident in his transition to grappling without stutter or hesitation. For me, the, the thing with MMA that was always confusing that um, your article really helped, Sam. But it was like, how do I know when to adjust? Because for me, striking is on my toes. And then grappling is like gravity and on my feet and learning to use gravity. And like, there's always a stutter for me kind of shifting to like thinking about like one or the other. Um, and so kind of seeing Jerry Yush kind of like transition smoothly um, was, yeah, it was actually like phenomenal because I'm not used to kind of seeing that movement. And something that I really observed is that Jerry Yush, when he resets after an exchange, like a striking exchange, he seems to be slightly moving backwards, like spiraling backwards. And it's different for me because I don't like moving backwards and creating that much space. But I was observing as well, and this is my first time really seeing him. I was observing that, you know, his, he has like really good forward movement with his pull counters and his takedowns. So I, I kind of was observing, that, okay, he like subtly and very strategically when he, after an exchange, he slightly resets, you know, thinking micro steps backwards um, to set that up because when he does like pull a, execute like a pull counter or an explosive takedown it becomes really smooth so i observed that as adding into his confidence and his smoothness and transitioning from striking to um to grappling and overall in round three ferreira seemed to be reading like Dariush a bit better and uh, throwing strikes a bit more confident but overall um Dariush had more confidence and patience with that and yeah that was it <laughs> sean yeah, so first of all, I want to say that it's absolutely ridiculous that a judge gave this fight to Ferreira. <laughs> it made, that made no sense at all, and it really makes me angry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what's funny is, like, I walked away for some of this fight, and then, uh, so I watched, like, a good chunk of the beginning and then, like, a good chunk of the end, but I missed part of, like, round two. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, Maybe the round I missed a lot of, maybe Fajera won that. <laughs> but I was kind of surprised because everything I saw, he was losing. Um, I, I actually thought this was a really brilliant fight by Dariush. Um, I'm not super familiar with him. He he had two takedowns in the first round. Um, Ferreira really had no real answers. I mean, he he dove for a leg one time, I think. That was basically the only offense he had on the ground that I saw. And in the middle of the fight, 
like Freya was, he was kind of active on his back, like wiggling around, but totally ineffective. So wiggling on the ground is not effective grappling. Uh, yeah, not in the UFC. <laughs> New guy? Just like Sean and Jimmy said, Darius came just with nonstop pressure. I'm very confident. I believe he scored five takedowns and shot maybe two, three more times than that. Um, so he was very confident about entering the guard of Fajera, who has a very active guard, has submissions over Anthony Pettis. Um, so I was just really impressed by Dariush's versatility. And also this fight was fun because it was sort of a reprieve from the last couple of fights on the prelim where it seemed like the person on the bottom just didn't really have much of an idea of what to do on the ground. Fajera was throwing up all sorts of stuff, omoplatas, you know, all sorts of uh, just crazy things from the back that Dariush was ultimately able to deal with. One thing, um, I felt that Dariush at times zombied through a couple pretty hard shots. Um, and we've seen this from him before. I believe last year he got the comeback of the year when he suddenly knocked out his opponent. And it's working for him now, but I kind of question if maybe he's being a little bit overconfident about his ability to just eat strikes like that. Karian? Yeah, this was obviously like a one fight of the night because it was the best fight of the night. Um, it was a amazing performance from both guys, I think. Like, it wasn't a single thing I saw Fehera doing that thought, you know, it was like bad or, you know, necessarily like the wrong thing at any time. It just seemed like an example of, you know, Dariush is just like kind of singing the song, anything you can do, I can do better. Now, when they started striking each other, they were both throwing like four, five, six, seven shots all in the same exchange, not really backing up too much until they had to reset. Dariush, when I was watching his face during the striking exchanges, even when he was getting hit, and hard on the chin um usually when you see someone get stunned a little bit like that you'll see like their eyes go wide or something um for him he looked like a man that had just made peace with like this is what fighting is (laughs) he was like waiting in um just returning shots you know chest and like kind of chin forward um like i remember at one point and i think like the second or third round watched him like eat a shot, grab a takedown, and like throw Fajera to the to his back and stand over him while Fajera's like throwing these hard up kicks and stuff. And Ariush just looks like he's fighting like a kid. He seems incredibly confident in his ability to just walk forward and you know keep striking. And he seems like he thinks you know no matter what happens at the end of the day, he's going to win those exchanges. Like I agree with a new guy that that might get him in trouble. Like this is not a division where you want to be taking shots from everyone just square on the face. Um, Justin Gaethje can attest to that. Um, On the ground, what I really liked seeing was, you know, Hera's still doing everything right. Like I said, he's throwing up these sub attempts, but then also seeing both guys use the leg entanglements as a means to get back to their feet or to try to come on top was really, really good. Um, they both had moments where they were, you know, reaping the leg and getting the other guy to turn around just so they could come back up to their feet or try to chase onto the back. I think Darius is one of those fighters where he knows his job description. 
which is that he's going to get hit a lot, even if he wins. And he's just come to terms with that. And I think in coming to terms with that is why he can have these come from behind victories. Alexander? I thought this fight was retro in a way that was different from all the other ones. We saw a lot of mismatches that to me had a very retro feel just because of the way that the UFC used to have a tendency for just being like, okay, you want to be successful in this division? You want to be successful in this company? Fight every grappler who's going to take you down over and over and over and over again. <laughs> um, and this was that same retro UFC booking, except it wasn't that particular trope. It was the trope of, hey, we have two guys who, like Darius talks about the end of um, his fight. You have two guys who are on huge win streaks who deserve top five opponents, have them fight each other. One of you got to lose. <laughs> we got to kill somebody's win streak so they can go back to making that regular money and they can't get that Charles Oliveira money. Um, okay, but on the technical side, um, I saw what I would like to have seen from every other person who got dominated on the ground, which was active. I saw active shrimping. I saw attempts for submissions, but thinking more about getting up more so than anything, Fajeda gave himself a chance on the feet. You know, he didn't take advantage of that chance in every circumstance, but like people were saying, he was catching Darius with shots. And in some of these other fights, had these fighters been able to give themselves chances on the feet to get back to their feet, to have better head or arm control, to recover a guard, you know, they might have, we might have seen different fights. We might have seen different outcomes. Um, another thing that I noted was when Darius comes back to his corner, uh, Rafael Cordero goes, why do you always have to fight? Like, why do we have to fight? We don't have to do that. Just jab, <laughs> jab and circle, jab and shoot. And he says, um, jab and shoot. And then Darius goes back out there. And the first thing I was writing down was, and he's not doing that. He's just going back out to slug with him. Fine. Do your thing. <laughs> but then at about the two minute mark, he did it. He jabbed and then he went for a shot. And oh my God, it worked so well just beautiful yeah if you listen to uh Rafael Cordero you'll do all right <laughs> one thing I think about like Darush having that um confidence and walking forward and eating those shots is I do think that comes from you know the acceptance of this is what my job is um people talk about this with Dustin Poirier a lot too where it seems like once you've accepted like man I'm gonna get hit and you just always are aware of that and you're watching those shots coming you see yourself have more of an ability to absorb them um you know i think that was also happening with Darius a lot where you know para was hitting him hard but he saw the shot coming he was able to kind of tuck his chin in a little bit and just kind of like you know flex up for it let the punches roll off sean i said that he was doing a lot of wiggling on the ground and they're saying that he was uh you know doing the right things going for submissions so i concede <laughs> but, but they remained ineffective. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he was really doing the right thing, right, then he wouldn't have lost. So history will judge it as wiggling. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. New guy? Yeah, I think at the end of this fight, um, I didn't really feel, even though he lost, I didn't really feel like Fahir's stock went down all that much. Because um, he lost, but... And this is just my own perception, and I don't know what's actually going on in the heads and the bodies of these fighters, only they know. But Dariush looked absolutely exhausted, and Fajara still looked pretty fresh. Um, and at the end of the third round, it looked like Fajara was about to catch Dariush and 
some kind of front headlock or maybe a Darce or something. And then obviously the round was over and Darius won. I do think Darius won every round. Um, I also thought it was weird that the one judge one judge gave the fight to Hera. But um, I still think just given how fresh Fahara looked um, and just the end of the third round that something like this could potentially go differently if it were a five-round fight. I'm not saying that it would, but it would be interesting to see for sure. Sean just typed in the chat that uh, wiggling is effective in conserving energy. So there you go. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) There's a plus side to the wiggle. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Next, we have former Ryzen champion Manel Kopp versus Alexandre Pantoja, with Pantoja winning by unanimous decision. Alexander, you're a big Ryzen fan. Yes. So what are your thoughts for this fight? Because uh, <laughs> uh, there was like a lot of high expectations for Cop, right? Yes, there were. He was coming in, um, riding probably the high of his career. So just, I'm going to give a quick rundown of Ryzen really quick. It's going to be super quick. There's a top three when it comes to Bantamweight and Ryzen. That is Kai Asakura, Kyoji Horiguchi, and Manel Cop. Um, Kyoji Horiguchi beat Manel Cop. Kai Osakura knocked out Kyoji Horiguchi, but then Manel Kopp beat Kai Osakura for the title and then came to the UFC. So that's how he got here. Um, if you notice, he was kind of talking before the um, at the weigh-ins, before the fight, and that is very, very him. It's also very him to get to the end of a fight, feel like he won when clearly he didn't win that fight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I see why he was frustrated. He, he clearly was faster. He was seeing everything coming. Um, he didn't take a ton of damage. He did get hit with some clean shots, you know, and I think he got hit more than he thought he got hit, but it was just very frustrating for me to watch him kind of be so, I think he was so focused on not getting taken down because Pantoja has just, he scrambles on guys and gets them, you know what I'm saying? Gets their back and then taps them out. And it's pretty wild to watch. Like when I was first watching, I was like, ooh, I don't know. Um, but Manel Kopp has decent wrestling. He was wrestling Koji Horiguchi fairly successfully until he got caught brawling and then got taken down. He got timed very well and got taken down. Um, so I would have liked to see more aggression from him, period, be it on the feet or with takedowns or whatever it may be, just to get in some intermediate positions against the cage and kind of do some damage. But you know what I'm saying? Pantoja beat him on the feet. He did what he had to do, you know, touched him. I'm not bitter. <laughs> you know, watching it was top. Just being real tentative, I guess, because he didn't want to get taken down and was trying to counter to the point that nothing happened. And Pantoja just kind of putting 
strikes together to keep him on his back foot and avoiding the counters that Cop did throw for the most part. Sean? This was a weird fight to watch for me. Pantoja was the only one who seemed, at least for the first two rounds, that interested in throwing fists and feet, which was sort of weird to watch in a pro MMA fight. Um, and, you know, I don't know, he was kind of, uh, cop was kind of passive and tentative. I don't know if it was because of takedowns or some other reason, or if he was trying to counter strike and just couldn't get him off. But, you know, at the end of the fight, I just was sitting there thinking, even though Pandosha won, I'm not even sure who is really the better fighter there. Mm. You know, Pantoja was just the one who actually decided to throw their fists a little more often and be a little more aggressive. And uh, he was, he did a good job holding the center of the cage. And it seemed like he was far more willing and capable of imposing his game and his will on the overall fight. And um, Cop was just far more just accepting and passive. And he was willing to be pushed around the cage, it seemed. You know, he was being led in the in the dance, I guess you would say. And at the end, I just said, you know, he threw more punches. I guess he wins, but it didn't really feel like anyone really went out there and really wanted, really wanted to go out there and win this thing. But somebody had to, I guess. Yeah, you could definitely make a highlight where it looks like Cop wins because there's enough moments where when he does throw, it looks really good. It looks crisp. But that's the point of highlights, right? You're only showing the good parts. So if you just look at the good parts, it looks really good. But to your point, there weren't enough of them. Yeah, to um, build off of things that like um, Alexander has said, and then uh, John mentioned a little bit, it was definitely um, a kind of tentative performance from uh, Up. Um, it, I think I mentioned to someone last night that it reminded me of some of those like uh, heavily criticized Anderson Silva performances. Um, against people like Maya or Patrick Cote, where um, he really wanted his, he wanted um, the other fighter to start opening up more and giving him opportunities to counter strike. Um, I think especially in this fight because he was worried about you know if I come in and I try to lead the striking, I'm going to get taken down, like Alexander said. Um, but he didn't have a way to when Pantoja realized you know you're just waiting for me throw myself way out of position so you can counter. So I'm not going to do that. Um, when that became clear, Papa just kind of started being like, okay, so taunt or I'll just keep feigning. Um, you know, I'll try to get you to come in. And then he would kind of burst here and there and it would be really good. Um, but I also did think that Pantoja put on a pretty good performance here. Um, you know, didn't do a ton. I would have liked to seen, you know, a little bit more aggression for from him, kind of. But in that situation where someone's waiting on you to counter, like waiting on you to counter you, it's hard to tell a fighter. Well, be more aggressive and open yourself up. Like uh -huh. he was doing a good job of throwing like a one-two and then just kind of colliding with Cop after to set up the takedown attempt. Like um, I had heard a few people mentioning that. Um, for the fight like leading up to it this week that you know pantoja is a guy that what he wants to do is he just wants to create a collision with you to be able to grapple you he doesn't care about setting up the shot and i think that was a problem here because cops wrestling is too good for him to actually get the takedowns off of that so he still couldn't get it to the ground um 
I noted one thing in round one where he got cop circling um, to Pantoja's right to cop's left and managed to time one really good hard calf kick. And immediately after that, I saw um, cop really did not want to like circle too dramatically to that side and kept trying to kind of get his lead leg out of position for that. You know, you have to be aggressive to set up something coming back at you to the encounter. MMA striking can be so interesting because two people can move so differently and still be effective. Um, and, you know, Patoja is technically me in Muay Thai, like a technical pressure person, um, you know, that I want to strive for to be like. Um, so I didn't really need to look too hard at him as I was familiar with what his strategies were. And, you know, he was displaying that, like, good ring control. His back was towards the center. Um, you know, minimal movement there, economy of movement because of that. So he's taking his time. Um, explosive entries. Um, so yeah, staying calm and then exploding when he needs to, um, and committing to that. And you know, the patient, calm composure, um, you know, is at that level like really high for that style. Because for me, it, it's really hard. I get toyed with easily and like over emotional, and then that makes me like heavy and like sloppy. And it was cool to see Cop also playing the opposite of that. You know, trying to taunt him at certain points, and you know, he was just kind of brushing it off and like you know didn't react, like did calm and composed. So um, at the end of round one. Cape was starting to show more confidence. I, I could tell by the way he was moving, um, the way he was like thinking and trying to read the patterns of Pantoja. And Pantoja to me was a little bit boring, honestly, because I'm kind of used to that, you know, what he, what he was doing going for. Um, and towards the end of round one, there was an evasion of a low kick. And I, I noted that um, by Cop because I know that, as, okay, he's reading it. Um, that, okay, he's he was already anticipating that a, a kick's probably going to come again and he re- reacted to it. Accordingly. So to me, I saw that mental chess game play out in his head. And if Cop can like Cop can start Cop starting to read. So if he can like adjust based on the information he's getting, I was like, he could, he could do this. Because to me, Pantoja was like a little bit boring because I kind of I think can predict Pantoja. So I'm like, okay, if Cop actually can, can read this a little bit better, this could actually be really exciting. And I was actually like, oh, what's he kind of trying to do? Um and he's just like really creative, kind of like switching up what he's trying to do in the second round. And I think he like there was a takedown or something, but it was just like kind of like, I could tell it was like, it, went, it was very congruent with his creativity that I was observing. Like he was just like trying to do something new and like seeing his reaction. So I could just kind of like intelligent playfulness, you know, prodding with the front cup. But yeah, overall, Pantoja plays that, that points game, you know, from Muay Thai with, uh, uh, I think, yeah, a new guy asked, like, you know, a common drill we do really is like we block one and throw three back. Um, you know, just low-hanging fruit strategy. You will always get more points, easy points that way. Um, so he was just kind of playing that. So to me, it was boring. And I saw Cop just kind of not really... I saw him lose creativity here because I just... To me, it looked like he was kind of hyper-focusing too hard on... I think in his head, he was also playing like, I don't want to get hit. You know, kind of the boxing game, like hit without being hit. So I saw so him kind of more like like taking his time to kind of get one shot or like kind of more headhunting with it. Um, trying to yeah get that power shot, and and I think this is where you know it like it led to like him losing because he wasn't really trying more new things and and you know I I think Pantoja just started you know landing those points and I think that's how he won there. Yeah, I, I think Jimmy really kind of said it all. Um, my first note for Cap was landing counters, and then the very next note was not landing counters. And for me, I think this game was sort of or this this fight was sort of cops inability to adjust and then pantoja just having 
a reliable, consistent game plan that sort of comes from like a kickboxing background of just like Jimmy said, low hanging fruit, um, take one to land two to land three and just outpointing your opponent. Um, Pantoja really came across as having a lot of patience, not running onto those counters. I, I, I felt that his striking was a little bit more dynamic in that he had a larger shot selection. He was striking the body, striking the legs. He had a really nice, um, like snappy front kick that you'd throw off the rear leg that he caught cop a lot of times with. And he actually caught cop a few times on the way in. I think he just won out of pure patience. Next, we have a veteran clash between old veteran Michael Johnson versus old, old veteran Clay Guida, with Guida somehow getting another W in the octagon. Sean, what did you think of this fight? This was my favorite fight of the night, of course. Guida won. <laughs> and how dare you say somehow, somehow got a win. He dominated this fight. I would say for Johnson in the first and the third round, he uh, really hit, hit Guida uh, and rocked him or stunned him a little bit. But that was mostly it for Johnson's offense. Uh, he did, you know, he had some combos here and there, but he was mostly just out there to get taken down and smothered again, just like, you know, the other five fights we talked about today. At one point, um, I think it was in the first round, Michael Johnson got taken down by Guida. He was being held against the cage and he just kind of shrugged. On one hand, it was cool to see because 39 year old Clay Guida is coming out and looking great. But also, it just seems like Michael Johnson. Hadn't really added, hasn't really added anything to his game um, and is sort of plagued by the same problems that we've always seen him lose to. And yeah, he just hasn't really addressed it. Um, it was also interesting seeing like at 39, um, it looked to me at least like Clay Guida was transfer- like transferring more power in his hands than I had seen mo- like in most fights before. Um, which, I mean, that's kind of like a thing that like we'll talk about sometimes in boxing and stuff is like, you know, as your age gets up there in years, you know, your speed will go, but your power won't. Um, it was kind of cool to see out of him because there were a few times where he managed to you know, catch Johnson back. And it actually seemed like Johnson was taking a second to be like, oh, man, like, you know, I thought I was just going to be able to box this dude's head off, but apparently not. Jimmy? I wanted Johnson to win. I didn't, I haven't really seen him before. Um, just because my, you know, my teammate told me that he was from like Hoops Camp. I watched videos of his sparring there. Um, and uh, his stance was a little bit weird to me. That I, I had to realize that or look up that um, he had a wrestling background um, because of you know his height and how like kind of lower he was uh, there. And I'm just kind of used to um, at least in Muay Thai people kind of maximizing their um, their height and to kind of taking a more like tall and narrow stance so that. So the apex of their strikes, like the, max, like the length of it is a little bit farther so that that maximum power like range that they know they can have is a little bit like like higher. So, so it was just different for me to see that because I'm, I'm looking for, okay, they want the maximum power at the end of their reach, you know, in striking. And um, this is a little bit different because it's MMA and there's no grappling involved. But um, yeah, right off the bell, like Guida, um, yeah, Guida just came in with that pressure. And, you know, that time that I thought that um, Johnson would have to, to kind of like set a pace or something was, was right there before that pressure. And I think after that, he just kind of like lost spirits. And yeah, it was, it was just not what I was expecting. I saw videos <laughs> of, you know, him sparring partners and can't, and can't. So 
kind of reminds me of me sometimes. I call it sparring partner syndrome, where I'm just like a lot more free and creative and, and sparring because I'm also not keeping like score that a serious, the pressure of, oh, I need a score isn't on. So I like, I don't think too much about it. And next, just can't read people like in competition. So that's what it reminded me of. Jeremiah? Yeah. I mean, if this fight happened on any other card than this one with all the previous three round decisions that were smotherings, it would have been a perfect throwback to show the history of the UFC. But because it was on this one, it really seemed kind of like another, oh, here we go again. Uh, and it just showed that Clay Guida really does have that caveman mentality that he came into the UFC with of always active, even in the third round when they're doing the decision, he's jumping up and down, like ready to go for round four. And uh, just that same pressure attitude that he's had the whole time. And Michael Johnson just has a problem with it. You know, Guida just can be that kind of top 10, top 15 gatekeeper for, hey, this is what the level of wrestling is in the UFC. If you can't do anything with it, get out, I guess. (laughs) Next, we have the co-main event between Frankie Edgar versus Corey Sandhagen which on its own merit could have headlined any fight night card and many would argue should have headlined this event. However, perhaps this was for the best as the fight ended in 28 seconds of the first round as Sanhagen crushed the future Hall of Famer Frankie Edgar with a flying knee. Yeah, I mean, that was... I don't know how much there is to say, Um, but it was was frightening to see. I, I love Frankie Edgar, as a lot of people do. It's pretty frightening to see uh, just him fall over stiff as a board like that. Um, but Sanhagen, I mean, he set it up perfectly, you know. Um, Frankie Edgar came out pressuring swing, and Sanhagen kind of just, through his movement, led him into pushing in and dropping his level through the flying knee. And, you know, as soon as it landed, he knew. He just walked off and gnarly, gnarly flying knee. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that's a lot like the OJ fight in the prelims where, you know, like I said there, you just do something right one time and it works the way that you intended it to. And that was a perfect knockout for Corey. Um, my technical analysis for this would just be Ron Simmons from the uh, like 1990 to early 2000s WWE era. Man that just his whole catchphrase was, damn. <laughs> yeah. I think I said uh, early on in this preview, probably during the uh, the talk of the uh, Osborne versus Rivera fight, that we'd be talking later on about another perfectly seized opportunity where if you just do it right, it looks perfect. Uh, yeah, there's not even enough time to grab popcorn for that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I went with Edgar on the poll because, um, yeah, that's who I grew up with as a teenager in the you know, I think I had like an affliction t-shirt in 2009. Uh, so, yeah, and uh, I mean, yeah, he, he threw the cross, Edgar threw the cross off the center line, you know, kind of like just built in evasive maneuver with it. And, you know, Sagan showed like really impressive, like precision with that flying knee, which is easier said than done, you know, because kind of, yeah, just kind of was able yeah, to land it, execute it. Um, and then, yeah, just one that I took was like, our flying knees, the new spinning back elbow. Just kind of as a joke to myself, because back then, like, you know, when I first saw, like, it was John Bones Jones, like, throw that. And I was like, oh, is, 
is Muay Thai. That's what Muay Thai is all about, right? That elbow, he's like sneaky little shot. So that was just kind of yeah, interesting to see because the last flying knee I saw was like, yeah, game bread. So Alexander? Uh, yeah, like a couple other people, you know what I'm saying? I was like, okay, Frankie, Frankie might have the answer. And then he did not. <laughs> he really, really did not. Um, and in a post fight, Corey Samhagen said he owed Aljamain Sterling a nap. And I was like, oh, snap. Aljamain Sterling beat Corey Sanhagen, so I had to go watch that fight really quick. So go rewatch that if you haven't watched that and put some respect on Aljamain Sterling's name. It's funny how Frankie's nickname is the answer when he didn't have the answer so many times in the really big fights. Like Alex said, how good is Aljamain Sterling that he was able to find a solution to Corey Sanhagen? And uh, it's going to be real interesting moving forward to see the winner of Jan Sterling fighting probably Sandhagen next. I was pretty sure that Edgar was going to win this fight. <laughs> I thought he was going to get some takedowns and be able to grind out a win. Um, but the, the total of my notes is two sentences. And uh, the first one is Edgar got knocked the F out. And then the second sentence is beautifully timed knee. I mean, we can't even uh, disparage Frankie Edgar's game plan. We can't say he came in with the wrong game plan because we didn't see enough of the fight to even determine if he came in with the wrong game plan, you know? So we can't even like throw Frankie under the bus, really, saying like he did everything wrong. It's just like we don't even know what his game plan was. Maybe, you know, he had the perfect plan to do what Sean just said, which is to take him down, grind him out, do all those things. But we never got to see it because that opportunity availed itself to Sandhagen and then Sandhagen knocked it out of the park. and. It's not even like something you could teach people as a counter, uh, not because the way he lured him in was wrong or like the timing isn't something you can teach, but like that flying jumping knee is super athletic and is something like a lot of people will never be able to do. And so to be able to do something so athletic and then time it just right is also very remarkable. What is the future of Sandhagen? Definitely, it looks like, you know, the sky's the limit for him in this division. Um, he's, you know, definitely seeking that rematch with uh, Aljamain Sterling, for sure, um, calling him out of the fight. And that is, you know, the only, like, he's had recently, at least in the UFC. But uh, yeah, Aljamain was able to, you know, submit him pretty quickly. And it was almost the grappling version of like what he did to Frankie Edgar, where you know they had a fight that was pretty short, and then Aljamain just got on his back and got him. Maybe if they fight again, he can avoid that situation. You know, use these strikes that he's got. Um, it's definitely a fight I want to see. I would. It's any fight under 170. I would. You know, as I've said before, like top 20 guys could all fight five rounds, as far as I'm concerned. What about Frankie Edgar? Where does he go from here? Hopefully, a commentating job. Hopefully, something you know, in the retirement realm where he can still make his money. Right off the bat, you're like, he's done fighting. I've seen him take too much damage. First the Ortega knockout, now this. What else do I need to see? I don't know what I need to see out of Frankie Edgar, and I don't know how much more solidified he can become. And at best, he'll end up as like a gatekeeper because there are too many people ahead of him in line for him to really have another run of the title. Yeah. And also, he's not somebody who's known for an iron chin, but he is somebody who's like been dropped and gets up right away, like like nothing, and then just comes back into the fight. Whereas now, the punches that he was dropped by with Gray Maynard, I think he would just stay down. 
Like, I don't think he has the same resilience as he had before, where he became known as that small, kind of rocky type fighter, where just super durable. If you think about this same durability back then, but everything else stayed the same, we wouldn't have the same Frankie. So with that said, then what made Frankie Frankie was his ability to recover so quickly. And now that he doesn't have that, then a lot of his magic is gone, I think. So it makes a lot of sense why a lot of fans would like to see him retire. And especially now, like we've seen him get pulled forward. So a fighter is walking backwards. He comes forward and just sits down onto something and then just gets knocked out. Ortega caught him with an uppercut in a similar fashion. So I think everybody's going to be trying to time knees and uppercuts on him going forward. So he has that risk of getting knocked out again because especially fighting for this long, whatever habits he has are permanent. And we don't think he can get down to 125? (laughs) (laughs) I was joking that Demetrius Johnson might be the only fighter who is Frankie Edgar's size because Frankie really, like, now that we've seen him drop weight and we've seen the competition, he's still, like, smaller than his opponents. And I think the only opponents that he could find that aren't bigger than him would be at 125. But especially at his age, you know, can he cut down that much? And then for what? Like, he already has a legacy. So, but yeah, I think he he was a really a 125 pounder fighting at 155. And uh, he took too much damage there. I also was going to add it was flyweight. You know, do we want to see him cut down and then get uppercutted from hell by Figueredo? Like, <laughs> that's not going to be any better. Um, and I think the commentary honestly made this more like pressing with the way this fight went because in the build up to this fight, um, DC and Dominic Cruz were talking about, oh, Frankie doesn't need to still be fighting. Oh, Frankie, so that he has money. Oh, Frankie, you know, he's just doing this because he likes it. Then he got knocked down bad immediately. And that's a bad look to be like, you know, I'm doing this because it's fun. I love to get head trauma. It kind of seems like the book's been written on him. And it's a shame that these smaller divisions weren't around when he was in his prime. And it's amazing that he did what he did just against guys who were so much bigger. But now, like even these smaller divisions, he's just fighting guys who are tall and rangy. And I can see him hanging with some guys in the top 10, but not anyone in the top five. I think I made the joke um, before the fight that Sandhagen looks like two Frankie Edgars like wearing a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, we have Alistair Overeem versus Alexander Volkov. Alistair being another legend and another future Hall of Famer. And the fight went with Volkov defeating Overeem by TKO two minutes and six seconds into round two. Karian Talk to us about this fight. Yeah, so to me, this kind of looked like a fight I've seen Alistair Overeem have with plenty of people before. Um, I don't think that's going to be too surprising. Um, As we've all mentioned leading into the fight, Alistair Overeem, I think, had 18 knockouts as losses coming into this. Um, Yeah, this seemed to be an example of him fighting someone where once he kind of felt their power on a few of their shots, he started to panic. And Alistair has a problem where when he gets anxious like that and he starts to panic about this, he makes all of the wrong decisions to avoid it. Um, He starts going to this like big glove guard that leaves a lot of space. He starts turning his back to shots. He starts trying to run away. And um, 
it's not like he didn't have any success. He landed a few like hard left hands. I think he landed like a left straight on Volkov, landed a few kicks, um, attempted a few takedowns, but just wasn't having any success. And Volkov was just, you know, finding beautiful straights, lots of good kicks from him, like normal. And yeah, the left hook is what I think put Alistair Wolverine down. And I think it was um kind of a stark contrast to the Edgar stoppage for me and a different way that made it look, you know, kind of brutal still. And that um Alistair wasn't out, but when he hit the mat after that left hook, he was on all hands of like hands and knees. And um he didn't even really cover his head or anything when Volkov kind of stepped towards him. He just tried to crawl away. Just seeing the referee have to just kind of like shove Volkov away and not even bother trying to see any follow-up shots was like yeah alistair doesn't want to be in there right now that those shots hurt a lot and some of us were mentioning like his face um seemed to have a lot of redness on it and he really once he ate a few jabs and like straight shots to the nose really sensitive to that um but he's a legend and He's been on this incredible streak up until now, you know, coming back as like a older heavyweight fighter. Um, kind of a similar thing to like Frankie where, you know, I don't know if I want to see him retire or take a few more like fights. It'd be hard to watch unless, you know, he's getting kind of like that gatekeeper role again. But Alistair Overeem has been a gatekeeper. Um, do we need to see him keep doing that? Jimmy? Volkov? Like... Like, to me, it was super interesting, like, seeing his, like, stance and the way he used, like, his striking with his body. Um, just, yeah, I just love observing, like, interesting body mechanics sometimes. And, like, just, like, you know, with his length and his arms, he could, like, really travel with his punches. And, like, if, if he didn't use his shoulders in it, he could still do damage from the travel alone. But, you know, he engaged his shoulders as well. So I, I noticed how his technique was also really good for being long. And, like, I observe, like he has a really good, like, long-range uppercut. And, and yeah, he can connect with the hooks, like uppercuts and hooks, like the arcing punches, like really well. Um, so yeah, that was super impressive. Alexander? Yeah, this fight also was really hard for me to watch just because I also grew up watching Overeem, you know what I'm saying? Especially dominating Dream back in the days when he was known as Uberim and he was on that very nutritious horse meat. <laughs> <laughs> very nutritious. And around that time, he was simultaneous Dream, Strike Force, and K1 champion which was a wild accomplishment. And during his time in K1, we really did see that that high big glove guard that Karyun was talking about. And it worked for him when he had those big gloves. But then when he came to America and he couldn't get the same horse meat, you know what I'm saying? Because we have laws against such things here, apparently. They test you for horse meat here. Yeah, that was the problem. It seems why. Yeah, they test you. But yeah, so it was. it didn't work as well. It didn't translate. And so he developed a different style, which is a lot more movement based, you know, but movement is one of the, and worked very well for him in regards to keeping his chin protected because he does not have a very durable chin at all. And he does have over 15 knockout losses, like Karin was saying. It was unfortunate to watch him kind of revert to that old big glove static. I'm kind of just going to sit here and get punched and then try to run away kind of style of fighting. I think it does have a lot to do with, yeah, when he feels that power, I think it's really easy for him to fight outside of himself and fight against what his current type is. And so we didn't get to see the prospect killer Overeem, unfortunately. We got to see, you know, the the Overeem that I want to see retire, the legend Overeem who's kind of getting up there and can't move as well and isn't as, as sharp like Jimmy was saying. 
And so, yeah, retirement, I think, is is also on the on the horizon for me. Unless he wants to leave, go somewhere else and try to get that million in PFL or something. That's interesting. Yeah, it would be hard for him to hang in the UFC, even though the UFC's heavyweight division isn't that great. But you could actually see him go over to another organization like PFL and maybe win that million dollar prize. So it is wild, the disparity of how bad heavyweight divisions are in MMA. Oh, yeah. Does PFL even have a heavyweight division? I don't know. And then uh, <laughs> my other thing was that these these heavyweights are so big. I wonder how much the smaller cage really brought into that. In, I know it was brought up in broadcast, but I think you really saw that Over, Overeem had nowhere to go. In a couple of his last fights that he's had success in, he was able to run, basically run away and get away from the heavy strikers and then come back where he wanted, when he wanted. Uh, and he couldn't do that against Volkov. Volkov was right there. The cage was so small. Every time he tried to get away, he was able to just get cornered, basically. And it was just the end. I mean, Volkov's just on a different level right now. Jeremiah is not impressed by the likes of Jared Rolschild as a top heavyweight. <laughs> well, no, I. it's not that I'm not impressed. I didn't even know if they had. You didn't even know he existed. You're like, who is a Jared Rothschild? That's how bad the heavyweight divisions are. Now I'm going to have to do some homework because I know a lot of the smaller organizations necessarily don't have certain divisions. You know what I mean? No, uh, heavyweight is pretty weak. Heavyweight is just so thin. Hell, I could fight at heavyweight. <laughs> there would be some organization somewhere on the planet where you not having even trained MMA could be competitive as a heavyweight. If you decided to fight at 155, you would have a tougher time. But even a 155 right. pounder going up to heavyweight in certain organizations might become champion. That's how we uh, heavyweight MMA is. Exactly. Sean? Uh, yeah, I have a, a couple thoughts on Overeem and then just a third general thought. Um, the first two about Overeem are kind of related, I guess. Um, like in the fight itself, I mean, he just got beat up for the whole fight while he was in there. Um, but I'm one of those people that it really looked like to me that he, he something hurt in his face. You know, something happened to his face because he was just really reacting and flinching away from even... I don't even want to say Volkov throws light shots, but the lightest shots he'd get in the face, he was really reacting to them. Um, but the other thing that I think is sort of connected to that is that in Overeem's UFC career, and I didn't really watch him before UFC, so I can't speak to that, but he kind of strikes me as sort of a front-running fighter. Like, if if he comes out and he really hits somebody in the face with a good shot and they're kind of you know, stepping backwards, dealing with it, like, he gets real good. And he'll just steamroll somebody. But at the same time, if he gets hurt, like, he tends to just kind of, like, turtle up, like Kari and everybody else was saying. You know, he got hit the first time that he really got hurt. He just kind of folded against the cage and, you know, covered his head and just got even more hurt. Um, and I've, I've just always felt like he was sort of that front running fighter. Like he needed to be on his toes going forward or else it was just done. He just kind of, I don't want to say fold, but he, he get, he would get real tentative and do the wrong things. And, uh, you know, the other thing I just wanted to add is that we've been talking a lot 
talking a lot here about Overeem, but Volkov just beat up a legend. And he had a really good fight. And I, I just don't want to overlook that and just focus on Overeem here. Like, I mean, he, he TKO'd Alistair Overeem in the second round. And I think that's worth, you know, really mentioning and driving home. I like how organized John is introducing the number of points he has <laughs> from the outset. I definitely like to see him debate Ben Shapiro. You know, he'd be like, <laughs> B-Shap, I have three points to your bonehead argument. Point number one. Point number one. You're a dork. <laughs> and to add to Sean's point, Overeem did break his nose very early on in the fight against Volkov. New guy? Yeah, m- much the same as everyone else uh, mentioned. And yeah, really the only weapon that I saw Overeem use or try was his overhand. And even with that, it, it kind of just seemed like he was using that one weapon almost as out of like desperation. So yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a really impressive fight for Volkov. I think he's just an unbelievably intimidating person. I mean, he's six foot seven. I feel like he cuts weight to get down to 265 pounds. Or I think hit the cards at 264, but um, he also just looked beefier than he's ever really looked. Um, it looks like he's put on muscle. And so it, it'll be interesting to see what he does um, with the rest of the division. But yeah, I mean, heavyweight at the UFC, it just seems so stuck right now. You know, you have Curtis Blades, who's beating everyone with wrestling except Francis Ngannou. And <laughs> it just doesn't... I'm, I'm just not really sure where the heavyweight division is going. And I don't really mean that in like a good way. Like we can talk about bantamweight and be like, yeah, I don't know what happens among that top five, but with heavyweight, it's kind of like the opposite. It's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what, what challenges people are going to pose to each other. Overeem needs to have you backing up at least a little bit or not fearing, but at least respecting his power. And if not even that, then you have to be somebody that he could take down which he found none of those in Volkov. And so when he runs into that, especially this later stage, he has a lot of problems. But even with that said, Overeem's legacy is already cemented. So let's talk about Volkov. Volkov is the biggest fighter in the heavyweight division. Why the heavyweight division even has an upper limit, I don't know. (laughs) So being so impressive physically, and also everything we saw in this fight, can Volkov be a future champion? Beating the likes of Nganu, Miocic, avenging his loss to Blades, Lewis, or even a John Jones. Is he at that level? When I look at the heavyweight division, I always say, like the top five or seven, there's no, there's no real gap there usually. So yeah, I think he can win. He can win the belt. I think that he could lose it to any one of those top five or seven guys. I mean, it's it always it's always like 50-50, 60-40 every time any of, these, any of these top five or seven guys face each other, I think. Yeah, I think heavyweight, it's really hard to even string together one or two title defenses. So to your point, he could be like a one-and-done champion, which we've had a lot of. Yeah, I think he has a lot of upside. I definitely think there are a couple of roadblocks, namely um, Curtis Blades and Francis Ngannou, who kind of stand in the way of whether or not I think he can get to the title. Um, I think that Ngano should just put everybody on notice just because of the way that he knocks everyone out except Steve Bay. Um, and then having lost to Curtis Blades already 
and Curtis Blades being ahead of him in the rankings, he kind of just sits there as like a a guy that he'll have a hard time getting around. That being said, I think that the winner of Gane Rosenstroik is a good fight for him, especially if it's Rosenstroik, because there he has a similar opponent to Ngano who's going to come out and use some power um, and has like significant knockout power. But then if it's Gane, Gane trains with um, Ngano, so he's got some options. But I think he's, he's like solid, like top three, top five contender. So we probably need to see one more fight to really judge where he can go from here. Yeah, I think so. This was a lot of fun. I'd like to thank Karian for being on the panel. She recently began to write for Southpaw, so keep watching for that. You can also find her on Twitter at PowerTools. I'll add all the handles on the show notes. I'd also like to thank Alexander for being on the show, and hopefully he'll also be writing some MMA articles for us rather than just giving us all his deep knowledge only on the text chat. (laughs) You can find him on Twitter at... I made this to stand. Thanks to Jeremiah for being on the show and always dropping the breaking MMA news on the chat. You can find him on Twitter at Bullfrog527. Thanks to Sean for being on the show. You might already recognize Sean as the host of Tribunus Plebis podcast. He did a special episode for us talking about collective bargaining in MMA, which came out in December of last year, if you want to check that out. You can find him on Twitter at Tribunus Media. And of course, thanks to Jimmy and New Guy for bringing their knowledge to the show. If you enjoyed this episode and want us to do more panel discussions, let us know. If this group sounds fun to you, you can access this through our Patreon. If you want to submit something to us, hit me up on social media. And uh, did any of you want to add anything else? Or I just have two jokes about Michael Johnson and Clay Guida. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the first thing i was gonna say is that uh maybe if um we could ever have like a master's division for like 155 in the ufc i think at this point i'm pretty confident in saying clay guida would like be that champion for forever and then i think it's really really funny as someone that's been watching mma for like 12 to 10 years now that um the people that have the most athletic bodies as they get up in age are yol romero and clay guida (laughs) Yeah, he's losing more hair, but gaining more muscle, yeah, amazingly. <laughs> he'll start feeling like steel when people hit him. I'm going to pick him over Robert Whitaker next. <laughs> Play Guida is an opposite of uh, Samson. The less hair he has, the stronger he gets. Completely smooth. Yeah, by the time his head looks like a smooth baby's, he'll be just unstoppable. He'll look like Czech Congo. <laughs> <laughs> now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. 
And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Pulse. South Pulse.